Okay, good evening everyone. Um, it's good to be back. We're going to look at the, the four Gospels this evening. So we've got quite a lot to get through, so let me open us in prayer and then we can, uh, we can start. Father, we thank you for this day. Thank you for, again, the privilege of studying your word. And now as we get to the New Testament and the Gospels, uh, we just pray for a wonderful time as we as we study your Son, the Lord Jesus. And so please, please minister to us and keep us from error, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, four Gospels. Um, the first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, are called the Synoptic Gospels. And uh, that really means that they look at the optics. You can see the word uh, optics there to look at. Sin means together. They look at the same thing. So if you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, no doubt you will notice there's um, overlap. They, um, they, they cover the, you know, many of the same stories, many of the same accounts. So this is known as the synoptic problem. Okay, not that it's much of a problem, but anyway, uh, people, theologians sometimes trying to figure out, okay, why do they have the same material? Okay, so this is just a little bit of, a little bit of um, nerding out on you. It's not really important, but um, what, what we find is that um, Mark, or Matthew and Mark, uh, Matthew and Luke, have a lot of Mark's material, uh, and then they have um, other material that's not found in Mark. So it's generally believed that Mark is the earliest gospel, the oldest gospel, and then there's other material. And so they've, they've uh, theorized that there's an, another document, it was called Q, uh, which means, it comes from the word quella, which means source. Okay. There's no evidence for Q or anything like that. We do know that there were, there were uh, other, other writings about the Lord Jesus, um, uh, which we'll look at uh, because Luke mentions that. But anyway, that's just, um, if you ever hear about the Q document or the, the synoptic problem. But, um, so, so Bayman said, you know, it's because it's the same Jesus. That's true, but often it's word for word exactly the same. So that's where it comes in. That it's exactly the same, okay? Uh, not just, oh, it's the same story with slight differences. It's often verbatim. So did uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke uh, go to this document Q and make their notes from that? Or did other theologians say, Mark said this and this and this, and Matthew said, said, said this and this and this? Who no, they, they... researched Q and wrote the words from Q. They, no, what the argument is, is that because they... A lot of what Mark says is exactly what you find in Matthew and Luke. So they say, okay, so they, they got it from Mark. Okay. But then there's other stories and other accounts that are not found um, in, in, in Mark. So they say, well, maybe there's another document, Q. But as I said, it's just a theory. We don't have access to Q. We don't have access to any other Gospels. We do have the mention of the Lord Jesus Christ in other ancient literature. So Josephus talks about Jesus. 
um, I think Pliny and I forget the name of the other guy mentioned uh, Christ. Uh, so uh, Jesus was uh, obviously we believe he's a historical figure, but there are some people. There are a few people that say that Jesus never existed. Okay, mm. but that's really ridiculous because um, you know. Could not the added stuff in uh, uh, Matthew and Luke be the Holy Spirit trying to elaborate on this or that? Because, uh, I mean, it is God-breathed. It's not really... Yes, but it's remember it says that he will bring it to remembrance to the apostles. So we'll get into the... the um, um, when we get to Luke especially, we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that. But Matthew... Let's start with Matthew. As I said, Mark is the oldest gospel. It's, uh, virtually everyone agrees Mark is the first gospel. But Matthew has always come first in the order of the gospels. Um, because it is... <clears throat> the fullest. Mark is very short. Matthew also begins with the genealogy. So he begins with the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he gives us a fuller picture. He also, the book, the, the Gospel of Matthew, um, breaks up nicely into, uh, you have the genealogy, but then you also have these five teaching units or discourses. So the most famous one that we know is the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew it's at 5 through 7. That's, that's actually the first discourse. Okay? Um, the second one is Matthew 10, which is the discourse on mission and martyrdom. It's where the, the Lord sends out the disciples. Uh, Matthew 13 is the one on parables. Uh, Matthew the fourth one, sorry, is um, Matthew 18 through 19, where he talks about really life in, in the kingdom. And that's where you have the church discipline section in Matthew 18. And then the last one is what we call the Olivet Discourse. Uh, that's 24 through 25. That's where it talks about the end of the world and things like that. So these are the five uh, units. And in between that... Um, you have Jesus acting, so you have his deeds. So Matthew's very nicely broken up into sort of his deeds and his teachings. And uh, from early on, people have noted, well, there's five of these huge, these teaching discourses. What does that remind you of, five units of teaching from the Old Testament? Sorry, well, uh, what, is, what is five units of teaching remind you from the Old Testament. There's a whole unit in the Old Testament. The of, books of Moses? Then? Yeah, the books of Moses, the Pentateuch. So, uh, Matthew's primary audience is Jewish. Okay, So he's writing uh, to the Jews to prove that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the son of David. That's why in the genealogy, um, there is special mention of David. So in chapter 1, verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And so uh, David is, is primary. Uh, look at verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to, uh, to, Babylon, to the Christ, 14 generations. So he, he breaks up 
the genealogy of Jesus into three sets of 14. He has to leave out some of the, genera- some of the genealogy to make it 14, okay? So, um, uh, uh, what he's doing is, is uh, in, in uh, Hebrew, the, the, the Hebrew language didn't have um, uh, numerals. So, you would actually use letters for numbers. So, David, David's name, also in Hebrew, this is another thing, there aren't vowels, okay? So that's why Hebrew is very hard to read, can be very hard to read if you, know, if you don't know it, because the vowels aren't written down, okay? Uh, there are vowel sounds, obviously, but they're not written down. Um, there were people later on that went and put the little markers in the Hebrew uh, okay. for, the, for the scriptures to say this, this sound over here. Um, but <clears throat> David, uh, or David, is three letters, a D, a V, a D, okay? Mm. So three, and D is four, okay? It's worth four, and V is six, and uh, D again, four. So that's 14, okay? Mm. So 14 three times. Even in that, the Hebrew people would have understood this, the sim- symbolism of it, mm-hmm. that he's emphasizing that Jesus is the son of David. He's the son of Abraham. So Matthew goes back to Abraham because that's the start of the Jewish nation. Whereas Luke will go to Adam because Luke is, is, is um, also talking to Gentiles, okay? not just to Jews. But Matthew's focus is on the Jews. And uh, there are other things that... Uh, we can see he does that. He, he will say the kingdom of heaven. He'll talk about the kingdom of heaven instead of the kingdom of God. Um, you know, I've heard some guys try and find some secret. You know, there's two different things. There's the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God and all of this. That's nonsense. That's not the case. Uh, the Jews didn't like to say God's name or to say God even. Okay, Maybe you've even seen Jews will... Sometimes say like something like that. Okay. I'll write it like that. Which God? Our God. And uh, well, the God of the old, the God of Judaism. Okay, yeah. but which, if they were true believers, was the true and living God. Okay. If they were not, like the, many other Pharisees, then it's the devil. Okay. Mm. So, but um, remember that's why we said right at the beginning we don't know how to say God's name, Jehovah. Mm. Because the Jews stopped saying it. And because the vowel sounds are not there, we don't know what the vowel sounds are supposed to be. So that's why we say Jehovah, Yahweh. Why did they stop, why did they stop saying it? Because they said, well, if we don't even say it, we can't blaspheme. Okay. Because remember, God says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. So they said, okay, well, what are we, we're going to go a step further. We're not going to even say it. Okay. Now, that's always... Pharisees, that's, that's, Phariseeism is like that, you know. Um, it goes further than Scripture. And then you think you're holier than anyone else, okay? So, um, you know, there's bad TV shows. We're not even going to watch TV. So we're better than you, okay? Um, there's this. So we're not even going to do that. So we're better than you. So I think the example I used was of a swimming pool. So if the law says... You know, if you have a swimming pool, put a fence around it or something like that. 
a Pharisee would say, yeah, that's good. But if you're really spiritual, you wouldn't even have a swimming pool. Okay? That's, and that leads to self-righteousness because immediately you can look down on other people. You know? um, so uh, they stopped actually saying uh, God's name. So we don't know how to say it. But notice what Matthew does is he could offend them by saying the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God. And then really he's going to lose them. So what he does is he says the kingdom of heaven. Okay. Um, so we must also at times to try and win people uh, condescend to their weakness. Okay. So you see that in Paul. Paul says that about even about eating. Okay. Yes, you don't, you don't cause them to sin. That you try and win them. Okay. You could, you could uh, just try and offend them. Yeah, I know that's that's difficult, but okay. <laughs> uh, at least Matthew here he's trying to. But it's just to show that it's a Jewish audience that he's um, uh, talking to, and there are things within Matthew that, um, like this, where there's the five teaching units. There are, of course, the first one is the Sermon on the Mount. If you were a Jew and you heard about a mount, what would you think of? Sinai. Sinai. So, Mount Sinai is where the law is given. So, you can see that Jesus is being portrayed also as another Moses. Okay? He's another David. He's the true David. He's also another, another Moses, a lawgiver on the mount. Okay? Uh, Jan Smuts actually said something I thought was really good. He said, Christianity is a religion of the mountain. Okay? From Mount Sinai to the Sermon on the Mount to Mount Calvary. Okay. I thought that was quite, quite beautiful. Um, okay, so um, just to show you that it's a Jewish audience. Um, now, some of the major themes. Um, while it is for the Jews, it is for the Jews to also be evangelistic. So it's also Matthew that has this, the Great Commission. Go and make disciples of all nations. Okay. So he's not, he doesn't, he's, he's talking to the Jews to persuade them of who Christ is, but he doesn't want them to become insulated and super proud of themselves. He's, he wants them to understand so that there will be a light to the nations as they were supposed to be. Okay. Um, so uh, he begins with with um, the genealogy and with God's name, uh, with the Lord's name, Emmanuel, in chapter 1, verse 23. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Matthew ends, and this is, this is very interesting. I read a book quite a few years ago, how, how the Gospels are often bracketed. So it begins with God with us, and it ends with Jesus and the Great Commission saying, I will be with you to the end of the age. Okay. And so this theme of God with his people. Okay. And, the, and that's in the person of, of Jesus Christ. Okay, so as we go through Matthew... It's very unexpected, the, the, the story of his childhood, his birth. It's very shameful. Okay? 
Um, it's, we, we miss this because we're so used to the Christmas story. Mm. But it's very shameful because who are the people that are come, who are told to come and rejoice? Well, it's... Um, Well, first of all, it's who's, who's chosen, you know, Mary and Joseph. Uh, not great people, not wealthy people. Um, uh, we, we do have these wise men who come from the East, but that's shameful because they're not Jews. Okay. Uh, in fact, they, they're, they're magicians. Okay. Sorcerers. Um, the, the Magi, that's where magician but they're the ones who are, are wiser than God's own people. Okay. They come from the East and they come to, to uh, and you know the story, and it starts off with worship. They say, they, they come to Herod, they say, we, we, where, is, where is he? We've come to worship him. And then Herod says, well, tell, when you find him, come and tell me, because I also want to worship him. And so there's repetition of the word worship. And of course, we know that Herod's not has no desire to worship. He's a false worshiper. Um, he wants to kill them. And when the Lord reveals this to Mary and Joseph, they flee with Jesus into Egypt. Now remember, we've seen throughout the scriptures, that's a shameful thing. Hey? Mm. Kings were told not to go there. And so he flees to Egypt. He's taking upon himself the shame of his people when they were enslaved in Egypt. He's following in the footsteps of the nation of Israel. Okay, he goes down, he flees as a refugee to, to Egypt. Um, and Matthew then does something very interesting. Uh, verse 14 of chapter 2, And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Remember when we looked at Hosea, that um, that passage that Matthew is quoting is actually referring to the Exodus. Okay? When God delivered Israel out of Egypt, it was, Israel was called his son. Matthew reads it and he says, well, that is fulfilled in Christ. So that's why we say we believe that all of Scripture points us to Christ. Okay? And you can see that by the way the New Testament and the apostles interpret the Old Testament. They don't just read it and say, oh, okay, that's interesting. They would have obviously understood it's talking about the Exodus, but they would have understood, no, but Israel was a shadow and a type of the true Israel. Remember Isaiah 49, the servant song, mm. where, where the servant is called Israel. You are Israel. Um, Jesus Christ is the true Adam. Jesus Christ is the true Moses, the true Abraham, the true David, the true Israel. And so they interpret the Bible like that. Okay? They understand it that way. But then look at the, what happens. The children are killed. Okay? It's horrific. The coming of Jesus Christ into the world, what happens? It brings death, death of innocent uh, boys. Okay? He kills all the, all the boys in this village. Now, it wouldn't have been thousands or anything like that, but still, it's horrific and unjust. Mm. And they were, what did they have to do with it? Um, and so the coming of Jesus is the occasion for, for the slaughter of the innocents. Okay. Um, then he returns, he comes back after Herod dies, and they go to Nazareth. 
It's simply to say this, that Matthew up front is saying to the, to the Jews, what Messiah did you expect? Okay. Mm. He comes in weakness. He comes in shame. Uh, his coming brings pain as well. Okay. So very important again for us. If you, if you want to be a Christian so you can be great and successful and all of those things, well, read Matthew. That's, you missed it. Okay. Uh, we need a Messiah who will take our suffering and our pain and enter into it and um, take our guilt and atone for us. We need a, a, we need a suffering servant. That's what we need. Okay. Um, so it's, it's um, uh, again, as I said, we're used to it. We know the story. But mm-hmm. if you can try and put yourself as a Jewish person with their expectations of someone like David, and that's what he started off. Just, this, is, this is the one. And then it's, it's broken and horrible. Um, okay. Uh, then we have John the Baptist preparing the way, which we saw with Malachi at the end there. Um, 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 so, um, okay, in the teaching units, the Sermon on the Mount, um, chapter 10 is where he sends the, the disciples out and he, he, he tells them that they, you know, they're going to be persecuted, um, verse 28 of chapter 10. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Um, And then we come to chapter 13. And I just want to spend a little bit of time on on the genre here. So, uh, the first gospel, as I said, is Mark. And Mark actually begins by saying the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's, those are his first words. And so he, he really creates a new genre of gospel. Okay. Because the gospels are not traditional biographies. Okay. Uh, certainly not biographies that we are used to. You know, if you pick up a biography of Steve Jobs or something like that, it will normally they're chronological. They go through his childhood, who his parents were, uh, you know, where he went to school, etc., 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 all the way through. Uh, while we have we have some things about his parents, it's it is very interesting that basically nothing is told of his childhood apart from, you know, he goes to the temple when he's twelve. Otherwise, we don't know anything. There were other much later gospels written uh, where they. They portray Jesus as this precocious kid who goes around just doing, using his powers, you know, to, to, you know, he'll make a clay animal and make it come to life. It's all nonsense, but they're trying to, you know, fill in the gaps or, or um, it's, it's deceitful. But it's not a, it's not a biography, you know, as we would understand it. Uh, and it's not even a biography in the way they wrote biographies at that time. It really is a new genre. It's, it's a gospel. Okay? It's, and gospel means good news. It's the good news of the, the life and death of Jesus Christ. Um, and then within the, this genre are parables. Okay, the parables of Jesus. Uh, there were parables in the Old Testament. There are a couple of them in the Old Testament. 
but very few. You know, in the whole Old Testament, there's only a, a hand, you know, couple. But Jesus, there's like a flood of parables, isn't there? It's, mm. it's one of the primary ways that he, he teaches. And most people think he used parables so that it's easy to understand. Okay. But that's not the case. Okay, so let's look at chapter 13. Um, so... He, he starts with this parable of the sower. Verse 3, And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil. And immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He, he who has ears, let him hear. Okay. Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered to them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he who will have an abundance and sorry, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And then he goes to quote from, from Isaiah, uh, hearing but never understanding, seeing but never perceiving. Um, and then he says they're blessed. Okay, so very interesting. Jesus actually says, I, I speak in parables so that they won't see, so that they won't understand. Okay. Um, now, when you read through all the Gospels and you read all the accounts, it is clear that the, they do understand the parables. It's not that they're so intellectually complicated, like, I haven't a clue, what is he talking about here? Mm-hmm. I mean, the parable of the Good Samaritan, we understand that. Yeah. Everyone understands that. What it means by understanding is that you're willing to accept the call upon your life to act like this. Okay. So that they could not understand. Why must I love, uh, you know, Samaritans? Okay. Why must I? Why must I behave like this? Uh, and so they will refuse to accept what what it means to be a part of God's kingdom and to live like that. Okay. Um, so it's not about intellectually understanding. Okay? One can understand the parables intellectually, even an unbeliever. An unbeliever could give this teaching. Um, on the parables. Mm. They could write books and explain what it means. Jesus himself tells us what this first parable means. So uh, he explains it to us. Um, but if you don't have eyes to see, you, you, won't, you won't see, okay, this is in fact the, the way to go. This is in fact the way to live. This is what the kingdom of God is like and I want to be a part of it. Okay. Um, so he goes on to explain it. So this is now where we come to interpretation. Verse 18, here then the parable of the sower, because he actually says, you know, if you don't understand this one, you won't understand any of them. Okay. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. 
Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. Notice that was what he was saying earlier about understanding. This is the only person who understands it. He indeed bears fruit and, and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another, another sixty, and in another thirty. Okay, so Jesus now gives us the explanation. So this is where, uh, you know, how do we interpret parables? Um, so when you read some of the church fathers, they were very creative. It's what we call uh, allegorical interpretation. So, especially the parable of the Good Samaritan. Augustine has this, uh, let me see if I can find it here. Uh, a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Augustine says that's Adam. It's representative of Adam. Jerusalem's the heavenly city. Jericho, the moon, which signifies Adam's mortality. Thieves are the devil and his angels. They stripped him. They stripped him of his immortality. They beat him by persuading him to sin. Um, they left him half dead. So he says, well, that's a picture of we're physically alive, but spiritually dead. We're half of the priest and the Levite. There's the priesthood and ministry of the Old Testament. The Samaritan is said to mean guardian. And so that's Christ himself. Bound his wounds means binding the restraint of sin. Oil is the comfort of good hope. Wine is exhortation to work with a fervent spirit. The beast, remember he's, he puts him on his beast, his animal, his donkey. He says that's a picture of the flesh of Christ's incarnation. The inn is the church. The morrow is after the resurrection. The two pennies is the promise of this life and the life to come. And the innkeeper is Paul. Okay. <laughs> so. Is it all for real? No, no. That's all. Augustine is, is, is using allegory, but he's going too far. Okay. So allegory is where you're taking. When you take, when you take something from the story. And then you, you say this is uh, what it's pointing to. So then people have reacted against the allegorical interpretation. The problem is, Jesus interprets it allegor allegorically, doesn't he? Because he says the seed is the word. Okay? He says the path, the, 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 the path is the hard heart. The mm. seed lands on it and the devil takes it away. And so, um, Some parables are alleg allegorical and others are... Yeah, all of them are. All of them are to a degree. Okay. All of them like are. The, the Samaritan thing is because they hated Samaritans. The, so that's like your enemy helping you. Yes. So that, is that allegorical? There will be, there'll be allegorical interpretation because the... the um, it does because point us... There's fact as to why he named the guy helping as a Samaritan, not anyone else. So it's a, it's a picture, but it does point us beyond to Christ. So all of them point us in some way to beyond. Okay. Now that one is much closer. It's not as, um, some are more, off, you can yeah, say yeah. further, some are less. Yeah, okay. um, so like the kingdom of God is like a treasure hidden in a field. Yeah. Um, you know, those are simple stories, but it's symbolic. Okay, what is the treasure? Um, and again, people have differed on that, uh, but... Lamps of oil that are full, uh, ready for yes. coming, you know, 
not those quite. the parables later on in Matthew. Yeah. Not really when things happen. Yeah. So um, we in this one, Jesus gives us sort of the the pattern. Okay, it is allegor- allegorically interpreted, <laughs> but you don't don't go crazy. Okay. <laughs> Um, and then the research now is generally what we find is that um, um, they have a, most parables have a triadic structure of three. Okay? So there's a lot of parables about a father or a master. So that's one. Mm-hmm. And then a good son or good servant. And then a bad son and bad servant. And so you have this triadic structure. Okay? So a lot of them are like that. Um, the prodigal son is like that. The faithful and unfaithful servants, the two debtors, the two sons. Okay, so these stories um, are there to reveal things about the kingdom of God, the way God's kingdom functions and, and operates. And, um, and I think I've told you before, again, most of them are, are shocking. Now, the parable of the Good Samaritan is shocking. Hopefully, we even get that one a little bit. But you need to understand how shocking it would have been for the original heroes because he's saying, who's my neighbor? Mm-hmm. And here, the hero is actually a Samaritan who they hated. Okay. The Samaritan is actually acting in a, in a, in a, a loving, godly way. Okay. Um, and so there's a punch to most of the, the parables. So I think I told you before, this one is actually, there's a punch here because this guy is just throwing seed everywhere. And seed was incredibly expensive. Okay, they would they had professional sowers, but this guy is throwing it on rocks and on the path and everywhere, and so that's why it's sort of shocking. Okay, and when we get to Luke, we'll I'll try and quickly show you some of the how shocking some of the parables in, in Luke are. But just to say, the parables are not there to to help people understand. They're actually the form of judgment on those who reject God. So it's a challenge, actually. Yeah. Are you willing to go this way? Mm-hmm. Okay. See, the Pharisees got what Jesus was saying about the, uh, the Good Samaritan. Okay. But they're like, I, I, no, I'm not, I don't care. I'm not going to think a Samaritan is a hero in this story. I'm, I hate the Samaritans. So basically, he's basically challenging their pious piety. Exactly. So the, oh. so the rabbis used parables. So it's very interesting. Uh, the rabbis uh, okay. used parables. And as I think it's Craig Blomberg says, Jesus' parables subvert Jewish tradition, whereas the rabbinic stories reinforce it. Okay, so a lot of the parables are actually very similar to the rabbinic parables. But there's something that undermines Jewish tradition. Because remember in the Sermon on the Mount, you have heard it said, you know, um, hate, hate your enemy. Okay? But I say to you, love your enemy and do good to them. Okay, so, so the parables are subversive. So I actually went so, up preached yeah. through them years ago. This, this, the title of the series was Subversive Stories. So, yes. So then, uh, in this case, if, if, if each of the Gospels are targeting a different audience, then does that mean the parables also play a different role when speaking to a different audience? Or no, no, they're not necessarily always a different audience. Often it's, it's always the Jews. Okay. that are there. Uh, sometimes it might be the leaders and sometimes um, the people. Okay. But, um, but if like, like Luke 
Was it Luke? He said speaking. Oh, okay. Oh, sorry. Sorry. I hear what you're saying. You mean the different gospel writers? Yes, yes. Like yes. If, if okay. Matthew so, speaking to the Jews and Luke yes. speaking to like Gentiles, then wouldn't the parables also play a different role? Yes. Okay. Uh, yeah, so they, 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 um, they pick and choose different parables based on what they're trying to achieve okay. in, their, in their narrative. Okay. Yeah, no, that's true. Okay. Okay, so parables are very, very interesting um, and very memorable. So we do, we do remember stories more easily. Okay, so it carries on. And um, uh, I just want us to go to chapter 24. And that, this is the, the last discourse, which is known as the Olivet Discourse. And it's famous because um, it's about the end of the world. Now, we don't have time to go into it in detail. All I want to say to you is um, they, they say to Jesus... They look that you know. Look at how beautiful this building is, the temple. And Jesus says, uh, "Not one stone will be left upon another," which is quite shocking for them. So they take that to mean the end of the world. Okay, the destruction of the temple must be the end of the world. And they say to him, verse three: "Tell us when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age?" So they're saying, "Okay, when's the the temple going to be destroyed and the end of the world and your coming?" Because they understand that when the Lord comes, that's the end. So they're like, okay, when's it going to happen? What are the signs? Okay. And what they don't realize is that the, the, there's actually two questions, because obviously, as we now know, the temple was destroyed in AD 70, but the world carried on. Okay. And Jesus knew that. There are two different things. So the first thing is that he, um, he answers is um, the... Um, the destruction of the temple. And so here he talks about um, verse 6, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, and, but the end is not yet. The nation will rise against nation. So he's actually talking about the end of Jerusalem in AD 70 there. He's not talking about the end of the world. Verse 9, then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake and then many will fall away and betray one another. Uh, and um, he says then the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world. He or, Paul already uses that phrase in Colossians 1 and 1 Timothy 3 that the gospel has gone out to the whole world. Um, so they already believed that the, because it was their world, the known world, the Mediterranean. Um, and then the end will come. And then he talks about the abomination of desolation, which is exactly what happened in AD 70. The Roman emperor went into the temple, all of those things. The destruction of the temple. Uh, look, here is the Christ, or there is the Christ. Don't believe them. For false Christ, false prophets will arise. Um, that, that happened. We know that. There, there was a specially famous guy that people followed after because it was a very... Uh, um, the Jews were in a... In a foment about a messiah who's going to deliver them from the romans um it's not talking so much about now there will be a final antichrist but most you know most people who claim to be christ are you know nuts and nobody it's mm. like five people follow them okay it's not that's not the biggest danger yeah. that faces faces us it's talking about then and then that's where he says um Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven 
Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. Um, and so it sounds like, oh, that's the end of the world. But remember what I said to you. In the Old Testament, the language of judgment, even on uh, in 586, is like this. The Lord coming on the clouds in judgment. It's symbolic language. It's apocalyptic oh. language. So this is Jesus. It's the same language that's used of the fall of Babylon. So that's not going to happen. This, this here he's talking about, yes, literally he will at the end, but here he's answering the first question because he says, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place, verse 34, the people he's talking to. This generation will not pass. So that tells you it's going to be in your lifetime, and it was. It happened uh, just under 40 years later. Okay. So you couldn't take the, the, the word this beyond the, you know, literally the people that it was... We're speaking to and applying to life. No, because look at the verse 36. Notice how the shift. But mm. concerning that right. day, okay. you see he makes a distinction. Okay. okay. So he says, this is, it's going to happen. This is what will happen. There's going to be wars, rumors of wars, false Christ, everything. Um, and he says, um, this generation will not pass until it happens. But concerning that day, and our, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. Now he's transitions to the end of the world. Okay? And people say, but how can Jesus not know? But remember, it's in his humanity. He's saying, of course he knows now, in his humanity. And as the eternal Son, he always knew. But at that time, in his humanity, because remember, he was fully human, it had not been revealed to him. He didn't know it. He was just being honest. Right now, I don't know when that's going to happen. Now he knows in his glorified body, he knows exactly when it's going to happen. Um, so now he says, what's going to happen in those days? So what, what's going to happen before the end of the world? Well, as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And then he goes on to give two parables. So, so we don't have time to go into this. We'll look at maybe more in Revelation. But two parables, the parable of the ten virgins and the parable of the talents. The parable of the ten virgins tells us his coming will be longer than you think. Okay, Because remember, that's what happened. They fall asleep. They think, we've got enough oil. We're okay. And then they run out. So that parable says, look, it's going to be longer than you think. You need to persevere. Okay. And already it's been 2,000 years. And... Um, they're doing exactly what Peter says they would do. They've said, oh, you guys have been saying the Lord's coming back for 2,000 years. Peter says they don't realize that's the patience of God. He's long-suffering. Okay? Then the next parable is the parable of the talents. So what must you and I be doing? Working. Don't be reading the newspaper and trying to point to stars and this and the red moon and all of that and figuring out. Just get busy. Keep working. Making disciples, sharing the gospel, loving God, loving others, and you'll be fine. Okay? So keep busy and be patient. Okay? That's really what Jesus says. Uh, and, and don't get caught up in those things, you know, plotting the date. You know, remember that 2020, 2012, there was like all those billboards, the Lord's yeah. coming back. And then Christians look like idiots. Now, you, know, you try and tell people, but that's not, you know, those are sideshows and cults yeah. and that. They don't believe you. They think all Christians are, are nuts like that. But, um, okay. 
So that's, that's Matthew at the end of Matthew. Matthew 28 is a great commission. Go and make disciples. And, um, and really it follows. Remember what I said to you that the Hebrew Bible, the same material as our Old Testament, but in different order. It actually ends. The last book in the Hebrew Bible is Second Chronicles, what we call Second Chronicles. Mm-hmm. That's how the Hebrew Bible ends. Not with Malachi. Mm-hmm. It ends with Cyrus's decree yeah. that God's people will will return. So Matthew sort of follows that. He begins with a genealogy and a birth, like a new creation, like Genesis. And then he ends with with a great deliverer. And so Cyrus is a picture of that. Jesus is a is a, a greater than Cyrus. Um, and the promise that he's with us. Okay, so that's Matthew. Um, Mark is short and very different. Um, this Mark uh, is quite a character. He, um, <clears throat> he's, he basically gives us Peter's gospel. Okay? So Mark was, was not an apostle, but he was with Peter. Peter tells us that in 1 Peter 5.13. Um, he, um, and so really he's writing Peter's account. And he's writing for a Roman audience. And there's lots of things that tell us that. There are a lot of Latinisms. So um, Latin words like legion, types of money, wherein he puts them in, in, in Latin currency. Uh, he uses Latin words like census, denarius, uh, modius, praetorium, quadrant, sextarius, spectacular, executioner, and flagellum. Just to give you an idea. And also, this is what's so fascinating is that he he writes in a way that appeals to Romans. Okay. So remember there was the Greek Empire, and the Greeks became very proud of their philosophy and their culture. Okay. And I mean we we even to this day know that, you know, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, um, the that's what that that tremendous culture and intellect and all of those things. The Romans we're not into that. The Romans were people of action. Okay? So they took over some of those things from the Greeks and they changed names and things like that. But really, they were, they were about doing stuff. Conquering countries, building roads, uh, infrastructure, those kind of things. So it, it's sort of like, what movies do you like watching? Do you like action movies? Or, you know, drama, long story, lots of dialogue... The Romans watched action movies, okay? Mm. So Mark is an action book. He, uh, is <laughs> he uses the word immediately 42 times, okay? It's breathless. Like, if you go and read it, he's like, Jesus is a man of action, okay? Jesus is doing stuff. Immediately he goes there. Immediately he goes there. He heals this person. He casts out this demon. Immediately, immediately. It's, it's very much, it's, it, hold, it would hold their attention, like, Okay, yeah, this, but he's trying to defend Christ to the Romans because uh, he's trying to show Christ as a man of action and also even in his suffering because crucifixion was shameful. Okay, so he's he he really is appealing to to the Romans, um, and um, uh, you know it's not like good grammar or anything like that. It's it's and 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 immediately immediately immediately, but. But it's, it's there because he's writing, he's appealing to them, to that culture. Okay? 
Yeah. This gospel has a a focus. A focus mm. and, to that group. and that also determines how they write and which stories they include. Okay, because um, they they're trying to do different things. Now. Yeah. No. That I just told you that, but it's actually very irritating that that um these people write loads of books about it and we have no evidence. Anyway. He has the exact reason. There's different focus groups. <laughs> yes. Why it was written. It's more the, it's all the, the same story written in a different way. Except for the parts where it's exactly the same. So that's the, what we call the synoptic problem. Why do, why do they, sometimes all three, have exactly the same words? Where did they get that from? That's... God breathed. Yeah, but it's... it's you know, God uses means. It's not that they go into um, a um, France and write. Um, they're definitely copied. You know, Jude, oh, okay. Jude and Peter are, have exactly the same. So one of them copied oh, from the okay, other. So it was planned. Like yeah. They, they Remember that, that our view of plagiarism is not the same view that they had mm. that time. Okay. <laughs> so, okay, so... Um, just to give you some of the structure of Mark's gospel. Um, uh, let me just get it here quickly. Okay, the turning point is in uh, Mark chapter 8. That's sort of a high point. So, Mark 8 verse 27. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ, and he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Okay. Now, this telling people not to talk is all, all the way at the beginning. Um, in chapter 1, he, Jesus heals a man with an unclean spirit, and the unclean spirit, verse 23, comes out and says to him, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. Okay, it's what, we, what theologians call the Messianic secret. I don't know if you've picked that up uh, in your reading of the gospel. Sometimes the Lord will heal someone and he'll say, Don't tell anyone. Don't go and tell anyone. Uh, and you think, Well, that's strange. Why doesn't he want people to know? Surely. Um, well, it's because that. King and kingdom and Messiah were, were, were explosive terms, politically loaded terms. Remember, later on, they do try and make Jesus king. They want to make him king. So he's telling people, don't, that's, that's not why I've come. So he's, he's stopping it. And also, he needs his disciples to realize who he is before he can reveal to them the truth fully. So... Mark 8 is where they say, you are the Christ, the Son of God. Okay. Chapter 9, then, is the transfiguration, where they actually then see his 
his glory. Okay, so um, they now see his glory. So uh, this is the last time in Mark 8 that Jesus forbids the revealing of his identity. It's forbidden before the transfiguration, uh, but it's revealed afterwards when joined to his passion. Okay. So if you look at verse 9, and as they were coming down, this is chapter 9, as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So really, what they had to realize, had to get before they could start spreading the message, is that there's no Messiah without the cross. Okay? He hasn't come as a political savior. He hadn't come just to you know, make the world a better place, eradicate sickness and poverty or something like that. But he had come to save his people from their sins. And they had to, they had to get that first before they could start going out with the true message. Okay. Now, Mark is very, while the action is fast, the disciples are slow. Okay. It's, a, it's very negative about the disciples. Okay. They look like real idiots. Okay. Uh, really. Now, it's interesting because it's, if it's Peter's gospel, can you see how the humility of Peter? I mean, he, he records all his failures. Um, and people, you know, people would say, denying Christ, you yeah, terms. foot in mouth, you know, he's always saying stupid things, <laughs> but it's there. And, and, uh, you look at these disciples and you think, sheesh, they're, they're useless. And people have said, oh no, Christianity was invented by a bunch of men, you know, but if you're making your own religion and you're the leader of it. The last yeah. thing you're going to do is make yourself look bad. Okay? Yeah. You're going to make yourself look good. And, okay. This again is his vindication that this is, this is not a man-made religion. This is the truth. Um, and then the other thing about Mark is how it ends. Okay, So maybe you're not familiar with this, but go to Mark chapter 16 just quickly. Um, okay, verse 8. Well, verse 7, so uh, the resurrection and um, the, the ladies come and find the Lord Jesus. Again, uh, remember that a woman's testimony was not allowed in court. Okay? It, was, it was deemed irrelevant and untrustworthy. So again, if you're making up a religion, you would not use women as your, as your first uh, witnesses. Okay. Uh, you know, you say, okay, no, we can't do that. Uh, no one will believe us. We're going to choose, you know, these trustworthy guys. But the first evangelists are, are ladies. Okay. Again, it's not, ma- it's not made up. It's, it's the truth. And the Lord says to them, verse 7, but go, tell his disciples and Peter, um, sorry, not the Lord, the angel, but go, tell his disciples and, and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. That's where it ends. Okay. Some of your... Uh, if you have a King James, it just carries on with verse 9. Okay. If you have another Bible, it will say, the earliest manuscripts don't have this next section, okay, from verse 9 onwards. 
Yeah. That is... So Jesus appears to the disciples, the great... Go and, you know, snakes, if they bite you, all of those things, you can drink poison. That is added later because... Um, because they're not happy with this ending. Because it's an, Notice what the ending is. They go out and they're afraid. That's how it ends. Okay. It's like those movies. You know those movies where it's a shock ending? Yeah. That's what Mark is doing here. It's a... You then have to go and think. Because the whole, the whole thing about... Uh, and it's, it, it uh, begins in Galilee and ends in Galilee as well. It says go, go to Galilee. But... Uh, you, you're, the, you, you're listening in Rome. You could then, you have to think, oh, well, they were petrified. What? I wonder what happened. Obviously, they overcame their fear because you're now believing the gospel, you know, 15 years later. So obviously, they didn't just stay quiet and hide away. Well, the rest is the truth. Uh, I'm not so sure. I mean, to go around drinking poison and all of that. I, it's added later on by people who didn't. It's the same with the Lord's Prayer. Um, so we don't have time to do textual criticism now, but it's not in the earliest manuscripts, and it's clearly an addition. So, um, you know, I just, I wouldn't... So which uh, version has it up to nine? Uh, uh, King James. Uh, King James has, 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 not, has, you know, will just flow, unless you have a, you know, some editors might put just a marker there that this is not in the earliest manuscripts, but um, eight is, is where it ends, okay? And it's there to show again, the disciples are weak and they're afraid. And it's really a challenge to the Roman Christians. How are you going to respond? They overcame their fear and persevered. Okay. But it's one of those, like I said, you know the movies where you have to go watch it again. That's sort of what's happening. It's, it's like a shock. It's very negative. It's very negative about the disciples, Mark's gospel. Um, and... And it, it's a true picture that we are often like that. We're often dumb and slow and afraid and weak. And it's a challenge to us. Okay. And then we'll look at the other Gospels just now, especially Luke, which is totally different. Okay. Okay. So let's stop there. Let's take a break. Uh, a break there now. So which Bible is the most accurate in interpretation? I always thought, I always thought uh, King James was probably the most accurately translated because of King James's thing about Bibles, or the Bible. Uh, well, King James was a... a he wretch. wasn't a Christian, but he, like, he wanted the Bible... Yes, he, he wanted... The guys wrote the wrong thing and he killed them. No, no, he just wanted one version so there was no division. It's a bit like the Quran as well at one point... The guy said, look, we can't have all these versions. We need one. And they burnt all the other ones. He just wanted one so there would be no fighting in his kingdom. Okay. So um, King James is fantastic. It's, it's, we have God's word. It's the Bible. It's more to do with textual criticism. So I think I'll do a, a session or part of a session on textual criticism 